0: Good morning, listeners. Welcome to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated to economic development in Atlantic Canada. Matt George is off for a couple of weeks getting married, so I'm happy to introduce Herb Emery as my aspiring partner this morning for this podcast. Good morning, Herb.
1: Good morning, David.
0: So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Herb Emery. He's the Vaughan Chair in Economics at the University of New Brunswick. He has an M.A. and Ph.D. in economics from the University of British Columbia, and he spent more than 20 years at the University of Calgary before coming to the University of New Brunswick. And I think his work there will help us with much of our conversation this morning. Starting in 2019, Herb has led a major initiative, the JDI Roundtable on Manufacturing Competitiveness in New Brunswick, aiming at exploring policies and strategies for invigorating the province's long-standing economic engine of manufacturing exports. So with that as a little starting point, Herb, I wanted to ask you firstly about your column this morning in Brunswick News, and I think that runs, does it run in all of the uh, Brunswick newspapers?
1: I think so. It's. I usually see it online, so it was in the Telegraph Journal landing page.
0: So... It's entitled Forgotten Maritimes Must Drive Our Own Growth, and you're not somebody that beats around the bush when you write. That's one of the things I think we like about your column here. You discuss the importance of exports, and I think you do a great job of differentiating between interprovincial exports and international exports, and I don't think we do a good enough job of that. Uh, I think most people, when they think about exports, they only think about You know, the stuff that leaves the country. Uh, uh, But uh, you point out, rightly so, that we have a lot of stuff uh, traveling to other provinces, a lot of goods and services that go back and forth between provinces. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So, the column's origins are actually in a a paper I wrote for a volume on uh, the fair deal in Alberta. So, Alberta is reconsidering its role in confederation as. Uh, the only net payer since 1961. And if you see some recent news coming out of Alberta, for the first time in 55 years, they're a have-not province. So they are actually receiving more in federal money than they is being taken out with their downturn. So this is triggering a closer look at what is the economic value proposition for provinces in Canada through the federation. And that led to a long literature that Uh, started around NAFTA that had to point out that a lot of Canadians don't understand how our economy is different from a generation ago. So when you and I graduated from university, the big fight was over free trade. And I don't know what it was like here, but in the West it was a very heated battle because we were talking about giving up protectionism We were talking about no longer protecting um, high-wage, low-skill manufacturing jobs that was going to displace a lot of people. And it was a turn back to the resource sector, which was what we were really good at, and autos. And so when we looked at that economy, what we had was our fates were tied to how well Ontario and Quebec were doing. Because what we were doing was we were trading a lot with the rest of the country, primarily central Canada. And in return, Ontario and Quebec didn't seem to have any issue with things like transfer payments because they usually got to sell you stuff with the money they gave. It was like a self-perpetuating Marshall Plan. Now what paid for all of that in the end was exports from the West and from the East, international exports. So that's the economy that we assume we have going forward. But in reality, what's happened is Ontario has turned into what Tom Corshane has called a region state. It's starting to find the rest of Canada annoying. Uh, They don't like things like our resource exports. They are happy to vacation. But for the most part, we're the country cousins of Confederation. We just keep asking for more. And we're not an important source of supply for them. We're not an important source of demand. And so we have to realize that when we get transfer payments, we're living off of someone else's exports and success. And New Brunswick, up until 2014, was a bit of an outlier for the region because we actually had much more in international exports uh, than interprovincial, which was not true for Nova Scotia and PEI. What's happened since 2014 is we are now as weak as Nova Scotia. Uh, So if you go back to the Backwater book you recommended on a podcast, in 2009, New Brunswick was seen as getting it right. It was the economic power, and Nova Scotia was the basket case. Now we seem to think Nova Scotia's got it right, but really I think we're just as weak as they are at this point. So this is where we have to pay attention to if our strategy is just to ask the federal government for more cash – We're going to have a tougher time as the rest of the economy in Canada struggles because what's the reason we get more cash when we're not actually able to sustain ourselves? We're going to start seeing a lot more rhetoric like the 60s where Tom Corshane, when he started his career, talked about depopulating the Maritimes, move the people to where the jobs are and just give up on the region. And I think Maritimers at the time despised Tom Corshane for that thesis but that's the kind of argument you're gonna see coming back just like Stephen Harper did early in his run uh, when he attacked the culture of the Maritimes
0: so we're going <clears throat> excuse me we're going to talk about a number of those themes throughout the next hour uh, but you end that column with a Three warnings, essentially, you basically suggest here, and I'm just, I'm quoting you, the federal government really isn't interested in the industrial growth of the Maritimes, particularly if it's based on natural resource exports or carbon emission intensive industries. You also say that, um, uh, that the focus will be on ontario the most dynamic sectors and location as opposed to backward regions like new brunswick and then finally you need to as you just indicated worry about the sustainability of federal cash uh to sustain our region so those are three kind of dire not dire but they're kind of uh kind of sticking your craw as 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 concern. so why don't you explain yeah. that a little bit
1: sure so <clears throat> another column i'm hoping to write also Uh, works off of this. And this was work done originally around oil and gas, trying to understand how Canada went from aspirations of being a global energy superpower to one that now despises the energy sector and has really tried to shut it down and close it in. And a lot of that is coming from, again, central Canadian focus is that they don't like emissions. They like the idea that we're going to be greener and New Brunswickers do as well. Like this is the greenest province in Canada in terms of emissions reduction. And so the challenge we have is we have an urban central Canadian population that dominates the federal government. And what they have is an aspiration of being a modern tech society. And so they don't really get behind things like pipelines or mining development and things that have traditionally made our economy rich. So that's a value shift we have to pay attention to. And because the dominance of central Canadian interests in federal policy, and also another shift that you'll see is this is behind the ACOA, no longer really having a minister present in the region. It's the federal government doesn't see provinces so much. They don't see regions. What they see are Canadians living in provinces and in regions. And a lot of their bailout through the pandemic hasn't been for sectors. It hasn't been for uh, particular industries or opportunities. It's been to individuals or individual businesses. And this was notable, and it's going to come up if we talk about oil and gas. The federal government went out of its way not to bail out oil and gas as a sector. They, had, they delayed coming up with a package so that it was really, they were bailing out businesses that may be dependent on that. But again, there's a central Canadian avoidance of wanting to support resource industries, and you can see what they've done to Northern Ontario. In a, uh, with that kind of attitude, they basically deindustrialized the North, and that's what we're looking at in Canada because there really is no attention other than ACOA to this region. And ACOA is working hard, but again. They're looking a lot at the ocean cluster. They're looking at innovation. They're looking at tech. But we only have RPC that's still talking about the mining opportunities, which are there and they're real. And those are also innovation and tech. Yeah.
0: So a couple of years ago, I did the economic development strategy for Sarnia. And Sarnia kind of you know resents Toronto because Sarnia is positioned as kind of, I don't know, like a, a dirty, and they've had a little bit of history around their energy production. But I suggested they just turn off The energy for, I don't know, just a few hours, maybe a few days, because all the pipelines, a lot of the electricity, everything emanates out of the Sarnia area and ends up in Toronto. So they use all that energy that you talked about that they despise so much drives, you know, all of the economic activity in, in Toronto. They just don't actually, they want it sort of done far enough away that it doesn't affect them directly. Um, I want it. So let's pivot to oil and gas development. So last week we had Charlene Johnson from NOIA from Newfoundland and Labrador on, and they've been for several months asking the federal government to provide a Norway-style incentive for offshore exploration. So before COVID-19, there were billions of dollars uh, allocated to exploration in the offshore, and there was a lot of hope uh, that there'd be uh, several new finds, and that for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years going into the mid-century, uh, that Newfoundland and Labrador would be a producer of oil, relatively low-carbon emission oil, quite frankly, at least that's what they, they tell me, Um. To meet some demand, even as demand reduces around the world through 2050 or 2060. So, after COVID 19, a lot of these projects were put on hold. um, And the province uh, is very dependent, of course, in terms of the oil and gas sector on its GDP. And they have lots of structural challenges. We can talk about that if you want. But basically, NOIA and the, and the provincial government have been pushing hard for this type of in federal incentive program, just like they have in Norway and, and and other countries as well. And there's been a lot of pushback. The feds have, you know, they've reduced some regulatory red tape and the time for environmental permitting, but they're very reluctant to provide any other kind of incentive to to stimulate exploration in the offshore. So I guess the question for you, and I've got a couple more things to tee up before I get you to riff on this, but... <laughs> Because i and you, you, as I said, you spent twenty years in, at the University of Calgary. You know this industry, uh, oil and gas, probably as well as anybody. Uh, but the Conference Board study this week said that the Canadian nat- National Gas, Natural Gas industry, and the LNG plant in BC will be pumping out large quantities of LNG until the mid twenty sixties or later. Um, I had a conversation with uh, a colleague of mine in Ontario who works for a natural gas utility, and they are planning on deploying new pipe to provide natural gas distribution in Ontario for decades. You know, this pipe, once they lay it in the ground, it takes decades to, to recoup the cost. And they have had no direction at all from the Ontario government about when they expect to be reducing natural gas as a supply of energy in Ontario. Uh, and then we have this thing about net zero emissions by 2050. So I, I don't even know what that means. I'd like to get you to comment on that. Is that we plant 20 billion trees and we can continue p- to pump all the oil and gas we want? Or what exactly do we t- are we talking about when we talk about net carbon emissions? So why don't we start at the top <laughs> and, and get your thoughts on what is going on in the oil and gas industry, not only in Newfoundland and Labrador, but in Alberta, and what should the right Policy response should be, I mean, we I think most of us understand that carbon emissions are a bad thing and we should, you know, work with the rest of the world to try and reduce those. I mean, that's not a universal view, but it's a pretty universal view. Um but again, as you as you look to the who's going to supply the demand as we continue to need oil and gas, why doesn't Canada supply at least its share of that demand over the next twenty or thirty years? So why don't you weigh in on that for us?
1: Well they It's not exactly a small topic, but um, if you go back to the history of Newfoundland's oil and gas development, it had its seeds in a big federal incentive that was created through the National Energy Program that was widely perceived to have cratered the Alberta oil patch in the early 1980s to move more oil and gas exploration to areas controlled by the federal government. So that was Trudeau the Elder. Uh, had a policy that way, so there would be a nice symmetry if uh, Trudeau the younger were now to impose some kind of incentives for Newfoundland oil and gas. At the same time, he's created a climate where Alberta's lost 240 billion in investment since 2015, just by shutting in pipelines and uh, getting rid of the energy regulator and things like that. So, okay,
0: so just let me let me let me just sort of jump in there. So, what you're suggesting is that the the main reluctance to do something for the offshore oil and gas industry in Newfoundland and Labrador is the concern that it will lead to less investment in the West or that the West will want something similar?
1: Well, this time around, I would expect the West would be saying things like, why aren't you just building a pipeline if you want to get more exploration and development? So why would it be specific to uh, Newfoundland? And again, if the industry were healthy in Canada, you would see a lot of uh, incentives for companies to come in and do that exploration and development but what we're seeing instead is companies at least in the west abandoning the leases that they have and an interesting thing that i think this government has to worry about is an effect of these incentives it's not going to be what they think in terms of a little mom and pop shop coming along and finding a discovery like the beverly hillbillies and getting rich You're going to look at major companies coming in, buy up the assets, and what you often see is a consolidation in the industry through these periods of time. An interesting artifact of the National Energy Program in the early 1980s is the big American companies in the West did divest, and it created opportunities for small Canadian companies to come in that then later grew up to be some of the majors that are out there today. But what we're seeing in most resource sectors right now is a consolidation and concentration of ownership. So a paradox of what I would say the more progressive governments of the last five to 10 years is they're actually one of the most uh, favorable towards corporate concentration that we've seen in decades. And so counter to their message about their, for the little guy, we are gonna wind up in about 10 years time with a highly concentrated industrial structure in most of these industries, which is where these incentives are tricky to uh, evaluate. Like who's, who's going to gain, if you give them an incentive to explore in terms of writing off costs, where are they gonna book their profits to pay tax? Is it here? Or are they just taking the, booking their costs here and booking their profits in another more tax friendly place? And we don't have necessarily companies that are sort of as tied to Norway <laughs> as the Norwegian companies are. So we've even had Canadian head offices relocating to the United States since 2015. So that's where they would be booking their profits.
0: So you are you opposed to any kind of incentive program to compete with Norway?
1: It's not being... Favorable or opposed. This is one where you need the industry experts to explain how this is going to work and what, how many dollars would it actually bring in, and if it's not going to generate the expected investment. Like if you look at uh, Jason Kenney cut corporate taxes, the corporate tax rate, and they saw no investment come in, and so that's the risk a government runs if they do an incentive package and then the industry just banks the the uh, gains and doesn't plow it in the investment. So. Are they going to come up with a scheme that has to tie the dollars of investment to the incentive? I don't know the Norway one well enough. But this is where a government gets a bit nervous about when you're dealing with, let's say, a major company asking for a break. Uh, Even when they deal with beer companies in provinces, it's tricky to say, are we going to give uh, Molson or Labatt's a break against the small local guys?
0: Essentially what they're saying is it costs... I don't know what it is, $100 million or $200 million to um, drill one exploration well. Uh, and they're asking the federal government, I think, to pick up half that cost, either in terms of a tax uh, break or a straight grant, I'm not sure. And the idea would be that for every seven or eight wills you drill, drill, if you've done your the proper uh, geo work on it, that you will get a hit. So this is the argument that that there's no guarantee you'll get a hit, but if you could stimulate eight, nine, ten of these exploratory wells in the offshore, uh, that one or two would you'd actually get a, a major find, and then you'd end up with a you know a billion dollar play in the, in the offshore. So no guarantees. So yes, it could end up with government being out of pocket tens of millions of dollars, but their argument is while well, you're spending. What's the deficit running now? Three hundred and fifty billion? Is that what they? Yeah, I,
1: I think we're going to be close to five hundred billion soon. But
0: so what's another billion? Come on, Herb. What's another billion <laughs> here or a billion there? Come on. I mean, even even the seniors received multi-billion-dollar package, and and my parents were scratching their head. Why am I getting all these checks from Justin Trudeau? They weren't sure.
1: Well, I think with the oil and gas incentives, we have to also pay attention to the range of other investment tax credits and. um different tax breaks through like things like they used to have with flow through shares and mining, just to make sure how this would fit. And this is where a tricky part is we want to debate it publicly without knowing exactly how it would work. And traditionally I would expect a department of finance is like going through this with a fine tooth comb, trying to figure out how this would work. And so then the challenge for a government is can they sell it to a public, even if it does have a positive net value for the economy? They The other side of it is, a lot of people would point out, if you just made it better to get access to market or if you change the regulatory conditions so there's more confidence as to how you're allowed to produce, you might not need these incentive packages. So in a lot of cases, what we're looking at is we've had a, a climate and policy for resource development that's become more hostile and discouraging investments. So now we're talking about creating a new subsidy effectively to try and bribe it to come back as opposed to fixing the root problems, which is social license. Uh, how do we deal with the carbon emissions or the carbon pricing when it's here? And also understanding that Norway is capable of doing different things than we are because there's a different flow uh, to the cash with uh, how their national company does things. So again, so, it's tricky. I, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so let me, let me, Bring this up to a strategic level. So, I guess if you think about what Justin Trudeau was talking about in 2015, he was talking about he was using language like similar to to Rachel Notley that, you know, we need to dramatically reduce our carbon footprint here in Canada, uh, but as long as there's a demand for our oil and gas around the world, we should be serving markets, right? And that implied in that is that. You need to, to set your regulatory and even your royalty regimes in a competitive fashion, because if you you know if you set your royalty regimes at five times higher than than let's say Mexico or Brazil or anywhere else, you're not going to get the investment. So so there is an assumption there that whether it's the incentives for drilling or the royalty regimes or the tax regimes or other. Uh, you know, even the length of time to get things done, that those will be competitive with other jurisdictions, you would think, if you do buy that philosophy. Now, I think uh, Trudeau, he's under a lot of pressure, and I think there's, you know, his language actually has changed a bit since then. Um, But so what should the policy be? What should the, if you, if the federal government, if the national government was going to sort of state a policy for oil and gas development, a general policy, what should it be? Should they, should they... um, you know, should they pick a date at some time in the future and say, that's it, we're going to be done by that date? Should be, then you'd have some certainty for the industry, right? You'd have very certain timelines, right? 2050, no more oil and gas development in the country. Boom, done. Well, yeah, you, know, you might end up with like, I don't know, Alberta separating, I don't know. But the point is, at least you'd have clarity. I find there's no clarity. There's no definition, unless you have one for me around what net zero carbon emissions are by 2050. Is that even on export industries or is that just on local local uh, carbon emissions? So, I don't understand how you can, you know, anyway, I guess I, I guess I want you to weigh in on that before we move off this subject. What would be, no, but I mean, because I think this is the issue, I, I, you know, it was frustrating when, when the, with the discussion with Charlene. Anytime this comes up, even in New Brunswick, we import $400 million worth of natural gas and natural gas liquids every year. It's a huge amount of money. And it's just leaving the province to, to fund oil and gas development or gas development, particularly elsewhere, particularly in the US. And actually, we're bringing it in from Alberta. It's interesting. The, uh, the companies that distribute and use natural gas here in New Brunswick say they're getting it so cheap in Alberta right now that it's twice as expensive to ship it. The cost to bring it here through the pipes is twice as expensive as what they're paying for it. The actual underlying molecules are actually um, much cheaper than the cost of transmission. So there's, a, there's some weird and wonky things going on in that sector. But I guess the question for you is, so, if, so coming back to my natural gas distribution company in Ontario, should they just be plowing along and just assuming they're going to be distributing natural gas till 2100 or later, or should they get some very clear direction from government that, look, we're going to be out of this business within X amount of time?
1: So your closest analogy is to go back to uh, (laughs) when the utilities were deciding how much coal generation they needed in the 1990s. So a lot of provinces had coal for their base generation. They were looking at a growing economy, especially post-NAFTA. So they were actually growing that. And then they were looking at natural gas as a way to green the sector. At that time, did they anticipate a federal government and a provincial government in Alberta would come along and do a coal moratorium by 2030? And again, there's stranded assets. And in Alberta, when that policy was announced, it triggered a bunch of purchasing power agreements uh, that reverted to the province and put the taxpayers on the hook for several billion dollars uh, in return contracts. And it had the perverse thing that talk about lack of clarity. The NDP government was suing itself for the contracts they were stuck with. So the clarity issue has been a problem. Um, There's some great work done by Professor Paul Booth at the University of Western Ontario, and it's a paper called Making Good Regulation that explains how we got to this mess. Uh, He was involved in some federal uh, departments that were uh, seeing the social license type thing come in. And basically what we saw was a dismantling of the trusted regulator. So the federal government under Harper started allowing interest to go around the regulator to the politicians to go back to lobby the for different regulatory decision. That starts to diminish confidence. And then Justin Trudeau's election was really run on completely destroying the credibility of the National uh, Energy Board. And we saw that with Energy East, where he wouldn't even commit to accepting a decision that came from it. They kept changing the rules that they were doing. And so one thing we know is you can't really do any of this resource development without some clarity on uh, what are the rules of the game, what does a company need to establish if they're going to get approval, and if approval is made, will they be allowed to produce or will it be held up by protest? So one advantage of oil and gas offshore is it's harder for the protesters to get out there and block it. So that would be one advantage. but. Uh, If you look in the West, they're now passing legislation to basically ban people from being able to protest. So it's starting to look more Trump-like. And when you're talking about, are the police willing to intervene, particularly in a climate right now where you may have a clash of First Nations rights uh, over land, protesters and now police presence, it's just something right now I don't think governments can deal with. So this is... It's a complicated issue just in the sense that you're talking about a rational world that we spent generations to build up. And the economy we live off today was built after World War II with massive resource development. And we've kind of got stuck now because we don't want to do that anymore. And I don't think it's possible to do these big projects right now.
0: So why not then? I mean, I went to university in the '80s. I, I think you did too, and th- that was just the end of the period of long time frame business plans. So I remember studying in university about company companies that had fifty year business plans, and you know, energy companies with eighty year business plans around the, these huge energy projects. And now we can't. You know, it seems like it's hard to have a five year even on these massive. So it, it is a very uh, uh, unstable and uncertain time. So I guess the I, I guess it's impossible to answer my question because I, I, I do understand that in the case of governments, one government could say we're going to be off oil and gas by 2050. They could get lose power and the next government come in and say, hey, we're going to be on uh, oil and gas until 2100. But I still think if we really wanted to be serious about our oil and gas development, we'd have some sort of a long term plan here. And, and the last question I have for you on that before we move to something maybe a little funner is... If one or more provinces are going to be deeply affected by a national policy change, should there be some sort of compensation? So, for example, I wrote in a, po- a blog recently that if, if every household in Canada cut a check for $8,000 and gave it to Newfoundland and Labrador, that would be the, an amount equivalent to all the oil and gas revenue and royalty revenue they're expecting over the next 30 years. It would be about $100 billion dollars. So is that the solution? We all cut it, you know, get deep down and and uh, dig into our check checkbooks and write a check for, and then but then what do you do about Alberta, which is even yeah. much larger? What do you do about Saskatchewan? So so what is there anything? I mean, think about the cod moratorium. When the federal government came along and said, "Oops, sorry, we got cod management wrong. We're going to shut the entire industry down," they poured tons of money into Newfoundland and Labrador, relatively speaking. Including, I believe the original Hibernia was somehow tied to Cod Moratorium, wasn't it? Like, I think it was at least it was. Uh, what was his name? The 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 jolly uh, conservative uh, guy Crosby. Crosby. I think that one of the outcomings of that was something to do with that. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is is when provinces that have no skin in the game drive policy decisions that impact heavily impact other jurisdictions like Alberta and, and Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, in a democracy, isn't that a recipe for instability? So the question for you is what, is there any, should they be entitled to any kind of compensation uh, or is it it just suck it up? It's like asbestos, we don't like it anymore, so shut it down.
1: So the tricky part here is you're really asking about the core of Canadian Confederation. So provinces own their natural resources. Provinces have the right to take what they produce to Tidewater to get it to market. And it's up to the federal government to enforce the provisions of that contract. So when Quebec says you cannot build a pipeline across our jurisdiction, or we won't twin Highway 185 to four lanes, what they're doing is they're imposing a cost on other parts of the country. And one would argue if we believed in something like the Coase theorem, which is about what to do when uh, you have an ambiguous property right problem, is that if you establish that provinces have the right to produce and transport and the federal government chooses to not allow that to happen, there should be compensation. Now, in practice, politically, that doesn't work because you don't see people willing to pay taxes to ask Alberta to please stop producing. We will give you the equal value to uh, to that opportunity because There's a lot of voters, even Ontario, that would say that makes no sense at all. Why don't they just produce the oil and then we don't have to pay the tax? But your point about no skin in the game is it's also a kind of problem with cheap talk is that everyone can virtue signal they're an environmentalist if they make someone else pay for what they're going to get. So I've always thought that I would be perfectly willing to see more restraint on resource production if in return, commuters in the large cities accepted a dramatic increase in the cost of gasoline. I would like to see European prices of about $2.50 a liter.
0: But would you flow that money back to the producing provinces?
1: No, not at that point. Up? That At that point, everyone's suffering. So the what we're talking about is sharing the pain. And when carbon pricing first came out as a policy dispute and I was living in the West, The main concern was that the federal focus was on going after emissions production and not at the site of the consumer. And so it was easy for Ontario to say, we're going to green things up by getting rid of the oil sands. But the city of Toronto, I think has as much emission carbon through its transportation as the oil sands do. So there's no balance between the two, just because you have corporations that don't vote, but you have individuals driving too many cars in Toronto that do. You've got this political imbalance that this is what I talked about in a bit uh, with the commentary, which is Alberta is just not as important for Ontario as it used to be. It used to be a source of oil priced below the world price, and now it's priced at the world price. So there's no net benefit other than you're piping oil to Sarnia. Uh, So a lot of the value proposition of Alberta for the rest of Canada has gone away, and in many ways, Ontario views Alberta as – a dirty polluter, plus one that harms their manufacturing sector by causing appreciation in the exchange rate. And so confederation's broken. There's no champion for resource-producing provinces. And you have a federal government, as you point out, that can go to these voters that just want something that sounds nice that they don't have to pay for. And in fact, they still get to collect the revenues from the resource-producing provinces to do their subways and things like that in Toronto. I still think it's insane that we have a federal government that's so worried about building Toronto's next subway line, that I don't see how it makes any sense to me in New Brunswick as a taxpayer, or any sense to someone living in Saskatchewan, that, you know, it's just crazy what's going on.
0: Yeah, and I I do worry a bit, and maybe the problem is that older people get cranky, but I do worry a little bit that it could lead to the fraying of Confederation. I mean even down south in the u.s i used to admire the fact that no matter how much they disagreed they all sort of rallied around the flag i mean they were all americans it didn't matter if you were from silicon valley or texas or you know alabama but i think even that's fraying now and i think there's some of that is political leadership some of that is just our environment with social media but i do think that as i've written about that you know if jurisdictions and individuals that have no skin in the game are influencing policies that are going to hurt the other folks that actually have everything to lose, it's a problem, right? So so I'll give you one last point and then we'll move on. Uh, Noia has been doing this campaign, this sort of I love oil and gas campaign. It's I and then a little heart love oil and gas. And they have all these young people. 18, 25, 32, all talking about how important the oil and gas industry is to their career, to their community, to their lives. And if you literally took a microphone and went to Toronto and took those same people, they'd all be opposed to oil and gas, or most of them, I don't want to be too uh, simplistic. So it does really come down to economics. If it doesn't affect me at all, I'm, you know, who cares? If it affects me dramatically, I care a tremendous amount, and I think that has to reflect in the policy somehow. And I come back to that point, you know, that that the, the federal government should be just saying, "Look, let's let's continue to, you know, let's let's get her done, right? If we can serve our mar- markets, if we can st- continue to have profitable industries here, let's let's get her done, even as we dramatically reduce, Good. which is what Norway is doing. They're leading, of course, they're leading the world in the deployment of uh, electronic vehicles." electric vehicles
1: so i just want to highlight your identification of the role of young people in the debate and where they are is interesting to think about because 10 15 years ago uh the big need identified in the oil and gas sector was an education campaign around energy literacy just showing people what was the energy content of say an ear of corn or a potato that goes on your table to sort of explain to everyone just how energy works, how it gets through the entire supply chain and where the carbon would be booked. And this was in part to combat because what we're doing is it's not just economics. We're educating generations to think certain ways about resource sectors and the environment. And a concern that comes out even with how kids are exposed to the economy and I'm going to go out on a limb here, having reviewed some textbooks out west for high schools. The Marxist thinking of the economy is more present than market based. And so, kids come to university and they would take our courses thinking that this is about labor theory of value and uh, social justice type things. And we're talking about on the margin, this is how a profit maximizing producer works. And they get alarmed and say profit and get all upset. And we say, it's okay, it's zero in the long run that's what competition does so the education piece of it i'm going to point out new brunswick a weird anomaly there's very few students who take economics as a degree in most provinces it's one of the most important degree programs in a university but in new brunswick it's one of the smallest not in terms of faculty members but in terms of students who are interested in it no and so that's in part where i think I'm encountering a very different response to arguments I would make on campus as I'm more likely to have students in my class who object to my saying that markets are a good way to do things.
0: Wow. Well, that's something we need to talk about another day because I would love to see more young people getting involved in actual understanding the economy. We're going to talk later on this morning about young people uh, and the economy in our future. But before we get there, I wanted to change tracks completely and talk about economic history. Because I know you've recently been um, studying New Brunswick's economic history and economic development history. You've been doing a lot of research on that. I remember a few years ago, um, probably 15 years ago now, I was making a speech in Fredericton, and an old guy came up after. He was in his 80s. His name was Hal Fredericks. And he took me aside and he gave me his book. He had written a book. I still have it here. And he was actually around in the 40s and actually part of the big APEC move in the 50s around economic development across Atlantic Canada uh, and had all these great sort of historical stories about, you know, what went right, what went wrong and and, and all this sort of old timer stuff. So I think it was interesting for me because here was somebody that was actually there, I read about it, right? And but he was actually there. And of course, sometimes the historians are more accurate than the people that think they remember what went went on, because we tend to look at it through certain kinds of glasses. But what what it based on everything you've been studying recently about New Brunswick's economic history? What are your top observations, and what do you think we can learn about that past?
1: So I think we've come down on. There's two distinct eras in the last century. There's let's call it 1920 to 1970 where the focus in the province was really around wealth creation, leveraging the natural resource assets that were here, and particularly pulp and paper. And as that became successful, there was a desire to move into secondary manufacturing and higher value added products. If this sounds familiar, you can cut me off. There's a certain consistency in what the objectives are in a government policy. It starts to shift around the 1960s Um, after McCain's has sort of been established and after uh, the Irving uh, companies have moved into pulp and paper. And there's a fixation since 1920 in the province with something called the monopolies. And the monopolies uh, originally that they worried about were the lumbermen uh, who were keeping pulp and paper out because they controlled most of the timber rights. And then as they go bankrupt in the 1920s, there's a, a transition that they Their timber rights become freed up. The pulp and paper guys pick them up. And then you wind up with uh, International Paper, the company in Bathurst and Fraser uh, Company. So they become the the monopolies. Now, I just want to highlight that because this fixation with monopolies doesn't start with the Irvings or the McCain's or anything like that. But the government is preoccupied because they don't seem to be producing fast enough and doing enough. So the government starts to, by the 1960s, use federal money to recruit more companies to come in and build mills. And so what we're getting is international companies putting branch plants here and they're using the timber rights to do jobs as long as the economics are okay and and go forward. But this was a period known as forced growth, that governments were impatient with how quickly these companies were expanding if they were already here. And so they felt they could just add more competition. That would bid up wages. That would... Um, allow them to put mills where they wanted them if they weren't in the right community. And that leads to a shift that goes towards they want to break down the market power of the large incumbent, often multinational producers, by having more mills in the local place. And if you're a company that's come here and it's sort of you're on the margin of profitability compared to somewhere else and the provincial government is bringing in a competitor next door, you might call that a bit annoying. Um, But in the Robichaux era, we see expropriation of timber rights and reallocation for these purposes, which is a big no-no in resource development. Uh, But you get some short-term gains that are coming from a desire to redistribute resource wealth, not just produce it. And also, you get a desire to have government take on a role of restraining the power of big business. And we don't see this in the other provinces it's only it's a new brunswick thing that comes in in the 1960s by the time we get to the 1970s the focus is to diversifying the economy away from uh, the monopolies in the forest sector so they're trying to bring in manufacturing with incentives this is now getting into your uh, bailiwick call centers would be another example but the government can drive new sectors diversify the economy reduce the dependence on Uh, a very concentrated, powerful sector. And that's sort of been the strategy going forward since then is investment attraction. And we continually struggle to kind of get the new industry that comes in. The call center one was a success. Um, it sort of may have run its life cycle. And so now we're in the problem of what's next. And we hear things like digital health coming up, which it could be the next thing, but you have to think through what are we gonna be able to be good at and how do we do that strategy? And I just just sort of want to finish that if you go back to the 1960s and 1970s, there's some really intriguing policies that are brought in, like the creation of the Research Productivity Council, uh, which is really about enhancing productivity of companies that are here, finding new products to develop. And today we see CCNB Innov up in Bathurst doing a very similar thing. And there was a nice story recently about a wood producer who I think has come out of that program. So a lot of the things that I think we need today were created in that period of time and we moved away from them. And I'm not sure why that's occurred. I think it's mainly a post-2010, maybe post-2002. But we dismantled a lot of the expertise in the public sector. Uh, We became much more passive about it, maybe a bit too reliant on cash subsidies and incentives as opposed to uh, people working as more concierge services to bring companies here and figure out who's a fit. So that's a complicated explanation. But to me, you've always got this backbone. And mining, by the way, was an early diversification strategy of the 1950s that came to fruition in the 60s and 70s. Mining is still there. It's just we're choosing not to really go after it, which is also true in northern Ontario right now uh, with the ring of fire development.
0: Yeah, and I think that's... That's, again, another great discussion for another day, but I do do appreciate that walk down memory lane, but I would ask you to tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about how Fredericton was positioned in the 70s, because you had some interesting observations around that.
1: Oh, so I've had the opportunity to get some old pamphlets that were handed out to attract industry, and it would describe what the province was like, and I want to say most of the pamphlet, if we had that degree of information available today, we would have a major leg up on things. We were better in the 1970s at providing information, including a detailed breakdown of labor costs for anyone who wants to move here. This was public Mm. information, including the number of of paid holidays. I think there were seven in the 1970s I'm trying to figure out how many we have today but the description of Fredericton was something like it's not a swinging city but it has a discotheque
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah as somebody who grew up uh, spent a number of years in Fredericton I, I thought that was an interesting description wouldn't be the first one that uh, that comes to mind around the discotheque okay speaking of discotheques I wanted to ask you we, we just you and I came off this Turning Point series uh, I think it was very interesting. I mean, you know, these things are always, there's been tons of webinars, there's been all kinds of things going on during COVID. So it was hard to cut through a bit of the clutter. But I think we had eight or 900 uh, um, people tune in for various aspects of that. I think we had lots of great discussions. But one of the things coming out of that was your desire that we need to engage a different group of people, particularly young people, uh, because a lot of the people maybe that were tuning in or, or engaged there were of a similar mindset. So what 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 are you thinking there, and why does it matter? Why why does it matter that we engage young people? Why can't we just keep it to the people that know what they're talking about?
1: Well, so the first problem we have is that once we decide that there's certain people who know what they're doing and there's certain people that don't, we have no ability to scale anything. We're just dependent on a small cohort and so if you really think about this suppose that the province the labor force were a big company new brunswick inc and we're trying to keep our workers engaged how do we keep those entrepreneurs and young workers that we want in the region feeling like they have a stake in the company they're not just here to produce a widget they're not just here because we need them for a short-term task but they see a prospect of moving up to become the expert you're talking about Um, We don't want them just going into politics to do it, which is the usual avenue is that you get these career politicians, they graduate from university, they're articulate and bright, uh, but no experience and all of a sudden they're an MLA or an MP or a mayor and they learn on the job, which a lot of them do a terrific job, so I'm not disparaging that at all. But the alternative is what if they're working more with something like a series of turning points, so they're not driving it, but they're participating. They're having the debate. They're able to raise, you like you and I got called the establishment by someone, I think, on that one, which I was quite proud of only being in the province four years. But uh, that's important language because what it suggests is that we're seen as putting forward a view that a lot of people don't agree with, particularly young people. And instead of us trying to convince them we're wrong, we should be asking them why they think the way they do and seeing if we if we're sort of missing a mark in terms of how we're thinking about it so the way it comes up in one of the leaders of the turning point series has talked about this often which is thinking about inclusive growth so there's a notion that not everyone has been sharing in what we have and how do we do things differently and we're seeing a lot of initiatives around the globe to reform capitalism to be uh let's say more kind-hearted which i'm not holding out hope through a severe recession but in any event that's the kind of discussion we need to have like how does that work or is it even true that we don't have the heart or compassion there when you're have a let's say an antagonistic relationship between a government and your business sector if the business sector always feels under attack they're not going to come across as warm and fuzzy they're going to be protective so those are discussions that i think we can get to if we're engaging with recent graduates young entrepreneurs And many young entrepreneurs, you've met probably the same ones I have, they have big ideas. Their problem is they're also footloose. So do they really want to stay here and fight with guys like you and me or (laughs) government or other groups? Or do they go to the place that says, come on in, here's your office space. This is our policy for 40 years. Uh, We can tell you what you're going to pay on power forever. Uh, We know you can get to market. And that's where i would like to see the voices expanded it's not just youth i think that we also want to uh, be more engaged across gender lines uh, more identifiable groups first nations for sure but again uh, i've had some students working on a project this summer and we had a we had an economic goal that we took from nova scotia which was around first nations employment rates and we decided not to continue with the goal as is because we never asked First Nations uh, representatives, is that a is that a goal that they even want? And so what we're doing instead is the students, I hope are meeting with some First Nations stakeholders and just having a conversation about what would an economic goal for your community that would be useful be, and is are there statistics we can use, or is this just not the right lens to be looking at these issues? So again, it it's changing it from us pushing how we think about things, but trying to get more into a conversation, but yeah. being able to inform it with what we know. But at the end of the day, economists don't choose the policy or the direction we're going to do. The voters and the public will choose that through democratic institutions. And once they decide what they're going to do, our job is to help them understand what's the best way to do it. And that's often misunderstood, that we get but- told we're imposing Resource development. Yeah, the- and
0: I, I think that's right. I, I guess the question would be though, how you how do you do it? I mean, do you do you put five hundred people in economics courses at UNB, or do you make man like the Herb Emery Seminars mandatory for all uh, all uh, students enrolled at UNB? Like how? Like it, you, I'm not sure that young people want to be particularly engaged in the conversation around GDP and you know and uh, wealth creation and labor market development and so on.
1: Well, I'm not totally convinced that's true. Like, again, with younger younger kids, we used to – I don't know if you remember the Pogs craze, um, but these things were like little lids from a milk cap with the old milk bottles. And they started putting crazy pictures on them, and kids in elementary school started uh, collecting these things and trading them. And pretty quickly, it got – kind of crazy because there were some really rare ones the kids were getting beat up over because they wouldn't accept the trade or the trade went the wrong way Mm -hmm. so we had students actually in university studying the market for pogs on elementary school grounds and it was a sort of an interesting exercise they start to see a lot of these concepts are uh, diffused through a lot of everyday life or weird situations so some of it's just if we had an hour or two, we could go into the high school and just talk about what is economics and the kinds of things, just getting them thinking in that way. Or do they have someone like us coming in to talk about resource development? Uh, In general, I found it's very difficult to be able to go into schools for a lot of legitimate reasons like safety and liability. Um, In the West, it took me three years to be allowed to go and talk about the cod fishery to my daughter's grade three class. But we finally got in and I could do a presentation that showed them how COD were caught and processed and what that did. And there's just things like that. There's other outreach things, public panels with students that I've been doing. Uh, We work on campus since we don't have students in our classrooms. I try to go to other people's classes and present. So I did one in uh, a law and economics course talking to budding lawyers a few years ago. And a lot of it's just, I think, figuring out how do we talk to young people? Where do we find them? How do we Mm -hmm. bring them into the room? Uh, Typically, when you're a student, when you're chief economist, did anyone ever bring a student to a meeting?
0: Only bring your, your children to work day. I actually got to speak to a number of young kids, but for the most part, no, there was not a lot of that.
1: No, but with experiential learning, a simple thing would be if you have a, a number of even grad students you're working with that if you go to say meet with a government department you ask for permission can i bring the student along just to hear how things go and then we do a debrief after what did you think about that comment because they'll be working on a project but to me there's also uh matt who's off becoming one of the last breeding pair in new brunswick i guess uh with his marriage uh engaging he's doing a really good job of trying to get his podcasts and media thing going. So he's a voice that I think that I'd like to see more attempt to leverage in the province just because of, as well, he's an entrepreneur. So a nice experiment I think for the province would be how do you make him succeed? And do we let him sort of figure it out on his own? Or do we start to see a community get behind him and sort of figure out how do we make this thing bigger?
0: Yeah.
1: That's sort of the, something I'd be interested in seeing to engage younger voices.
0: Okay. So that's great. So I, I, before we end today, I wanted to talk to you about small businesses. So uh, I've talked to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Chambers of Commerce, others. There's a lot of concern that we could lose potentially upwards of 30% of our small businesses. So a lot of them are trying to make a go of it now, but some of the initial feedback is that many of them can't make a profit with all of the new restrictions so with the social distancing with the reduction in, in uh, clients by 30 40 50 percent or more in some cases they're trying to push up prices we've heard that already uh, to make up for the lack the, for fewer actual customers so I, I guess I wanted to get as, a, as an economist I wanted to get your opinion of that so you could argue one could argue every year we the province loses about 2700 or at least in 2017, the private sector, there was 2,700 exits. So that's firms that actually went out of business that year. That's actually down from over 3,000 just a few years ago. So we lose a lot of businesses every year. So a cynic could say, look, these businesses may go under, but if they go under and if the markets do come back, then other entrepreneurs will step up. So why do we even care? So I guess the question, what, where do you come down on that? Do you think there's a real risk if, because of this one-time event and because of the new risks that it now brings to the entrepreneurship environment? In other words, I always had to deal with market risk and customer risk and all these other regulatory risks. Now you're telling me I have to deal with pandemic risk, so I'm out. Um, do you have a concern there, or do you think this is all going to work itself out in the wash? Uh, and then I have a follow-up question after that, but I'll I'll stop there and I'll get you to answer. Uh, basically, are you worried about this or do you think it's going to sort of sort itself out, the market's efficient, and it's going to sort itself out eventually?
1: So this is where we have to be very careful how we think about how the New Brunswick economy operates and adjusts. So if I'm a cold-hearted Ottawa, Toronto-based economist, my view is we can flush as much small business as we want, it'll come back, because I'm thinking about a national economy. I don't care where in the country those businesses come back. And we see this in the United States that you'll see a lot of top economists saying uh, small businesses die all the time. The ones to preserve are the large companies, the large exporters. And I believe that that should also be a focus for New Brunswick. But let's go to your problem about the small business. Now, if small business declines because of diminished demand here, and a lot of this is the haircut sector, so local Uh, local services. A lot of that uh, won't come back here. So we will see a shakeout and rationalization. You might have smaller ones. You might have a national chain who comes in because they've got a different franchise model or more notably, they can negotiate a better real estate deal so that they don't have the high overhead costs that the companies you just killed did. And so if you think about the problem of New Brunswick, we're really saying this is like Dalhousie and Campbellton 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they're about to lose a large employer, which is like a COVID shock. The services are all going to close down. And did they come back? And if you look at their main streets, they didn't come back. They have retained some, but this would, I think, lead to a real hollowing out of um, a lot of places in New Brunswick. I think Moncton will be okay. Cause that's where some of the consolidation occurs. So we'll maybe get up to three Cabela's and Bass Pros and, four Costco's in Moncton to serve the province. But for most of us, I think we need to be very worried about small business going away because a lot of what we've seen through COVID is New Brunswickers are happy to import. So they, other than haircutting, anything they can get from somewhere else, they'll go get it and you will lose that business. So what government needs to think about is instead of this complacency that will kill a few, will gain a few, is really taking a hard look at what can we do? to make sure these businesses can get through this or adjust to these new costs. So the federal government's doing this for provinces by saying, here's $200 million for your PPE and things like that, that you're going to have in healthcare." We don't see the government saying, gee, business could use a break too. Here's a grant for business to cover PPE costs or we'll cover the – workers comp price when that comes in so that's the kind of thinking that we're not seeing and if you do flush these businesses and you have to remember there's a second domino in there as well that cmhc is sounding the alarm on which is the mortgage cliff so a lot of these business owners and employees have mortgages and they're allowed to defer the mortgage payments while the businesses are deferring their payments like taxes And once everyone has to start paying those bills, if those businesses and jobs fail, then the housing market starts to tumble and then you're into the full-on really bad dynamic. So I think for New Brunswick, there's a much stronger case for sustaining small business to get through this than there is for Canada overall.
0: Yeah, because I, I guess one of my concerns here is that even if you shore up the export companies, and I think you're right, that's the core of this. If you reduce your export revenue that's gonna reduce the local demand and then it's just gonna complicate and compound uh, the problem. So I think you absolutely have to ensure that your export industries remain strong as a key priority. But I am worried that if these businesses do go away, that it could actually have uh, negative effects, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I know know that's heresy, but um, so let me ask you this in a slightly different way. Would there be anything wrong with just having a few national or international chains running all the industries, the lo- local market industry? So for example, even before COVID-19, the insurance brokerage industry was completely nationalizing or internationalizing, quite frankly. So they all used to be owned locally across the country for the most part. Uh, and in the last 10 years, you know, um, the big insurance companies and others have consolidated that industry and now it's mostly not locally owned. Uh, funeral homes, optometrists. Now the place where I get my, my eye doctor now is part of FYI doctors, which is a national chain. So there's a lot of these industries that are already nationalizing. They still have local people. They have local managers. They, in some cases, actually have local partners. So in the case of these professional services chains, it's like a, it's like a thing where they own part of the company, but are you, is that a, problem or is that just is that fine is that something that we should be worried about or not this idea that eventually you won't have 30 different pizza providers in your city you'll have three and there'll be pizza hut and you know papa john's and one other big large one is that is that a problem do you think you need dynamism in a local economy or do you think again that the market should just sort of you know set that stuff
1: so i i think the challenge is if we take just if i swapped out national chains for local or I have someone come in and buy up my local guys. That So instead of independent hair cutter, I've now got super cuts or something. That one's not a big deal if the services are still here, other than we probably aren't going to see the same kind of benefit through, let's say, the proprietor being resident in the province and paying tax here. So this is the exit of your higher income earners. They're going to be, again, booking their profits somewhere else and putting some of their costs here. That's not the problem I'm as worried about is that Supercuts comes in and they say, okay, we're here and we've got a super haircutting store in Moncton. We're going to close the one in Fredericton, the little guys in Fredericton, which is what's been happening with the big box stores. So you hollow out your local community. So people are probably shaking their heads saying Fredericton would never do that, but we have done it to all the smaller towns in the province. So now we've got people driving all over the place to get their services because they lost their service providers locally. The economy hasn't come back. And that's a case where I would argue you do need the local support for those businesses to keep them going because you're not going to get them. And I think you had uh, uh, lots of examples where you could go to smaller communities that used to have a fairly healthy downtown and Things are now gone and people are just commuting up to the larger centers. And with that, on the one hand, is the larger order of things. But you start with hollowing out rural New Brunswick to urban and then you're going to go New Brunswick's hollowed out to go to Toronto and Halifax. So my concern is if we let these small businesses fail, the guys that have the energy and willingness to do this, when they start over, say, forget this place. I'm going over to Halifax where I'm less likely to suffer this hit.
0: Yeah, that's my concern, too. I mean, I, again, I don't know the magnitude of it, but I do think, and I've changed my mind on this, by the way, it is it is true that old dogs can learn new <laughs> tricks because I used to not be worried about that at all. But then I've I've changed my view in recent years. I think if there is a market for uh, an optometrist in Minto, why not? Why shouldn't some entrepreneur, some intrepid entrepreneur say, hey, instead of trying to bring everybody into Fredericton where we're all competing for that market, I'm going to sneak out there and actually have an office in Minto and I'll have a captive market. So I'm, I'm starting to be of the view now that that for these kinds of services that there should be some uh, not incentives. I'm not talking about government, you know, trying to enforce that in any way, that's ridiculous, but just exposing those opportunities to potential entrepreneurs and saying, Hey, we have no coffee shops in community X, you know, wouldn't it make sense if some uh, aspiring entrepreneur put a coffee shop in community X? So I'm concerned about that too, but I don't know. I just don't know the extent of it. And I think that, you know, I would say uh, making sure our export markets uh, um, survive this COVID-19 is probably even much more important than worrying too much about the small business. But if our small business sectors are completely hollowed out, I think you're right. We'll lose a lot of that business. Um, and there'll just be more people migration as well, or people retiring and not being particularly productive
1: well the uh, the other part you see is that you no longer get uh, downtown small business. What you see is you drive out in smaller parts of New Brunswick and you see the businesses are now located in a garage somewhere. so you see the sign out front the i think it was a adult store in Rishabukto we went by it seemed to be in a <laughs> seemed to be in a garage of a house, not in a strip mall or a downtown, right by the arena, by the way, when we were driving to hockey. But the you get these, if we can't figure out something as simple as property tax relief for the, the sustainable level of tax burden on small business, including workers' comp, minimum wages and everything else, that's where I think we're failing the business sector. Because if demand has fallen, why do we have a right to be the first call on their revenue as the as the tax collector to redistribute for what we need uh, and basically leave them hung out to dry. Like to me, we have a bit of a social compact that it's up to us to also make sure the business environment is healthy to making sure that they can make a go of it. If the demand is reasonable, like, again, I don't think with small business, you should be concerned about excessive profit. Most of the small businesses in this province are marginally profitable by standard uh, determinations. So it's really the big box stores are highly profitable and they'll make mercenary decisions if you don't generate the volumes, they're out. Um, I am a bit alarmed at how many dollar stores are coming into Fredericton lately to replace the big box stores that have left, but not to disparage the dollar store. I do like to get things there, but... Uh,
0: It's the free market at work, Herb, the free market at work.
1: Well, no, it tells me that uh, on an income level, we're not seeing... Uh, the same level of demand that we used to have. And this is where I'm getting a bit nervous about the hollowing out and why I don't want to be complacent about small business. And I do think both local and provincial government has a lot of power to change the situation for small business, mostly through uh, regulation, work safe premiums, things like that, which everyone dismisses as not important, but those are big hits. The smaller you are, the Bigger pain those things are, and yeah. I think that's where I hope the minister of small business uh, is working with these companies to figure out a strategy to get them through this. Whether it's some kind of one-time uh, property tax holiday or something along those lines, but they need. Help. It is
0: an interesting, isn't it? An interesting thing that the federal government is running a deficit somewhere around hundred percent, or maybe even more. If your estimate is right, even more of annual revenues from last year. Uh, and the provincial, I think, is around 3 or 4% now that they're projecting their, their deficit is going to be relative to revenue or relative to total revenue. So that's kind of interesting. Now, I understand nationally because they have more tools to work with, it, 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 it's kind of interesting, but you would think the province may have run, and I know Alberta seems to be announcing a new support program every week uh, for various sectors of the economy. So I guess we can talk about that next week because you've agreed to come back next week. Well, while, okay. while our friend Matt is away and we're <laughs> going to have a special guest next week as well. So it won't be just us, but I think it's really, I'm really, really happy that you'll be able to come back. But before we leave today, I wanted to ask you what you're up to right now. What are you, are you writing anything interesting? Are you've got, if you got any publications that are going to come out soon or any papers uh, beyond Boost NB, which you mentioned earlier. And I do encourage uh, all of the listeners to take a look at that. That's what is the URL there. Is it boostnb.com? Uh, .ca?
1: .ca. No, sorry, .com, boostnb.com.
0: So it's an exciting, I've been in there, I've seen it. It's, it's very similar, well, completely different in terms of the graphics, but a similar idea as what uh, Nova Scotia is doing with its uh, uh, One Nova Scotia dashboard. So I applaud your work there. But are you working on any other interesting papers or research that we should be aware of?
1: Uh, we've... Last year, we've put out publications on uh, food insecurity and tobacco use to show uh, basically what we're doing with excessive reliance on tobacco prices to control smoking behavior. That led into a lot of work we've been doing around basic income. And then a boring paper, if you want to look it up in Canadian public policy, is we were looking at the mismeasurement of cost of living in the consumer price index and showing how Uh, There's Economists have a view that recessions have a silver lining that uh, because prices fall, your income, even if it's lower, goes further. So what they find is that uh, real incomes between, say, men and women, visible minorities and whites tend to compress in recessions. So they said recessions are obviously good for women and uh, visible minorities. And so when we looked at it, it's a problem with the method they're using because what's really going on is – they were looking at what happens to your your share of budget spent on food. And when your income goes up, that share should go down. And they never dawned on them that you might be spending less on food because you don't have any money. And so what was being interpreted as a silver lining was actually picking up just how hard the recessionary impacts were. And that we were linking to things like the spiking retail gasoline prices after 2012. So right now, COVID is giving some relief through things like gas prices and lower, but food's a bit higher. But we are trying to come up with a better measure of standard of living that we could apply to more local places rather than just the level of province. So that's a boring one. And the last one I want to put a plug in for is we're doing a survey of um, manufacturers to figure out their level of technological maturity. We worked with Martin Davis of Dunelm Associates to come up with a – a rubric for how mature a company is in terms of digitalization. Uh, we started by surveying some of the larger companies and we were surprised at how technologically advanced they are, which may explain uh, why they haven't seemed to be uh, enthusiastic about Industry 4.0 because they're already well on their way. So what we're looking at is we need to find out more about those medium and small companies that may be potentially high growth. And so our next strategy is to figure out how do we find all these companies to get them to complete our survey, but that should be online in the next week.
0: Oh, super, that's great. So, and when that research is done, is it gonna be made public?
1: It's always public. Uh, no, everything important. we do is intended to be put into some kind of public domain product uh, like a report like a commentary a presentation mm.
0: well thanks Herb it's been very exciting and enjoyable this morning lots to chew on lots for the listeners to, uh, to ponder uh, as always uh, you've got a, a wealth of knowledge you bring to the table we really appreciate that and we are excited to have you back next week so I hope you have a good week, and we'll we'll talk to you uh, in seven days.
1: Sounds good, David.
0: Thanks.